Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. Uh, joining me, as always, each and every week, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire, uh, and let's be honest, a soccer savant, is my good friend, David Mossy. Mossy, we are going to be talking about all sorts of things this week, uh, including changes when it comes to the United States Soccer Federation on and off the field. We'll be looking back at that great men's team from 2002 in the World Cup and comparing and contrasting with the U.S. men's national team of 2020. We're going to be comparing, speaking of comparing, the great Carlos Vela with Guatemoc Blanco and so much more, including some rules that either should or maybe shouldn't be implemented. So we're going to be talking about a lot of different things. Mossy, how are you in these interesting times? I am good. Uh, I have gone down the Ken Burns vortex. I am currently watching his documentary about World War II. As you know, I greatly enjoyed the Civil War one and also the Vietnam War one. Those are my two favorite of the documentaries I've seen from him. And so I figured I'd complete the set by watching the World War II one. It has seven parts. I'm through four. And absolutely fascinating gripping so far. I'm enjoying it. Yeah, everyone's watching a lot of TV and uh, and movies out there. We talked before about the, the Tiger King documentary on Netflix that is just blowing everybody's mind. I am down the uh, wormhole of long, epic type of uh, film out there, the likes of Dr. Zhivago and Lawrence of Arabia, and I'm right in the middle of Reds, these these expansive type of films that even have intermissions that don't get made a whole lot anymore unless it's a real kind of self-indulgent type of thing from a Tarantino perspective or Scorsese type of thing. But yeah, number one, they are, for the most part, pretty good, and number two, they are long enough to take up uh, plenty of time. I also ventured out uh, of my house this week uh, for the first time. I hope everybody is doing uh, everything that they can right now to keep us safe and sane and staying inside. But we all know at some point you have to go out and stock back up uh, as I did alone this week. I was sent out with a list and inevitably, even in the best of times, I sometimes veer off of that list. But I also, I went out, I got the essentials. Here we go. This is uh, stuff to live on right now. So that was covered along with some other stuff, vegetables and uh, that kind of stuff. The uh, stores out here in California uh, continue to be well stocked. That's uh, that's not a problem. And then we went back and, you know, I've been in this house here for a number of weeks now. But Masi, I, 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 I'm interested in your your perspective because I'm in my house with my my family, my, my kids and my wife. And so I have that human contact, albeit with family members, which sometimes can go off the rails. Uh, sometimes, believe me, I bet you I'm not alone and out there with people that have family that say, boy, it would be nice to be not only isolated, but completely alone. You are alone right now. How are you faring right now in this uh, isolated type of uh, existence, mandated isolated type of existence? Yeah, I actually think the fact that I live by myself, I'm kind of a loner, antisocial, has served me well because most of my free time is spent reading books, watching television, listening to podcasts. And so I've just kept on doing that. I eat a lot of my meals takeout. So I've just kept on doing that. So of course, you know, I'm missing people occasionally, but so far so good. I think I'm actually handling it fairly well. I wouldn't call you antisocial. I, 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 all of the times that I've been out with you, you are, uh, look, I'm not going to say you're the life of the party and you're jumping up on the table and entertaining us for hours on end, but 
the interaction that I've, that I have had with you in social settings, and I want this out there for the world, and especially anybody out there that is thinking of at some point uh, in the hopefully near future sitting down with uh, with David Mossy in a social setting, uh, you are in for a treat, my friends. Okay, so I don't want him downplaying his ability when it comes to uh, social interaction out there, Mossy. Is that fair to say? You get a couple of drinks in me, and the the uh, social <laughs> side of me comes out. Oh, I had another, uh, speaking of drinks, I had another uh, Zoom drink uh, meetup, whatever we're calling these things. I'm sure there's a cool guy uh, and cool girl type of phrase for it out there. But I was overserved in my own house. I was overserved. I got up the next morning and I was I was hurting, but I had a, uh, had a good time. And I hope everybody out there is finding ways to keep connected because there are ways out there. We, we live in a time where the platforms exist out there that enable us to be uh, connected. So please... Uh, do that because it is is important as i said not only the physical part but the uh, the mental part of this right now becomes very very important and that's one of the reasons why we continue to do this and i feel like when we're talking about soccer those of us in the soccer world especially those of us in the, the soccer media world we always have to caveat everything and so this is my caveat for uh, the podcast that we are doing we are an escape we are a momentary escape from the very real and serious situation that we have going on right now. It doesn't mean that we don't take it seriously or we don't recognize the importance, that we don't recognize that what we're talking about in soccer and sports in general pale in comparison. So having said that, there is plenty to talk about when it comes uh, to soccer, even though nobody is actually kicking a ball. Moss, you ready to light this candle? Yep. All right. We are not doing the traditional State of the Union. Uh, uh, if you listened last week, you saw that we've kind of changed it up a little bit. And... Uh, that's okay, because there's still plenty to talk about, and it enables us to dive right into some of the subjects. And we're going to start off with the United States Soccer Federation. And we're going to start off off the field first, and then come to the on-the-field realities of what is happening right now and how it's impacting the United States Soccer Federation and national soccer and national soccer teams. So the United States Soccer Federation, hey, hallelujah, they have signed uh, a, a deal with a new CEO. There is a new CEO for the United States Soccer Federation. Will Wilson comes in. This is after many, many months, probably too long when it comes to how long this took, but better late than never. Somebody is in that position. He's got his work cut out for him, but uh, he's a smart guy. He's been around a long time. He does come with baggage, but that's part and parcel, let's be honest, of anybody in soccer uh, nowadays. And it's not even necessarily bad baggage, but he's got this incredible trifecta. He worked for the NFL. He worked for Soccer United Marketing, and uh, he worked for WMG, the Wasserman Group. Full disclosure, I am represented by Wasserman. Uh, I never dealt with Will Wilson because he was involved in uh, American football side of it, um, but I have met him before, and that <laughs> that baggage, you know, set off plenty of, uh, of, uh, of sirens and red flags for a lot of people out there, conspiracy theorists. Uh, people that uh, are looking for for problems. I don't think necessarily that this baggage is is a problem. You do want somebody who understands what he or she is getting into, has some sort of experience with the game as he does, but it's not all with the game. I wouldn't look at him as an insider, but he has his work cut out for him. And they got on a conference call, and I say they, both he and the new president of the United States Soccer Federation, uh, Cindy Parlocone, and they got on and they talked through and everybody said the right things and, and when it comes to what's going on. And they recognize that they do have their work uh, cut out for them. You know, Cindy Parlocone still, to me, is really interesting because uh, everybody called for the head of Carlos Cordero. And 
you know, he fell on the sword and he did the honorable thing and he resigned uh, under pressure, plenty of pressure from the outside. But there's plenty of blame to go around. And whether it's Cindy Paulo Cohn or everybody in leadership, and we've talked about we've talked about this before. And I think right now, whether it's Will Wilson or Cindy Paulo Cohn, their job, I think, is to show that they know what they're doing, that they have this under control and that they can change. Let's be honest the perception of the United States Soccer Federation. But we can focus on the blame or we can focus on the task at hand, and that is getting the United States Soccer Federation back in good shape. And that is what Will Wilson's job is going to be day in and day out. And it's a it's a, it's a big hill uh, right now, but this is the man uh, who has been chosen. Yes, he has baggage. And yes, you can be skeptical, especially given recent events uh, and the way the Federation has positioned itself over the last couple of years. But I also believe in giving people the benefit of the doubt, and I hope that he brings us out of this dark period when it comes to how the United States Soccer Federation is uh, is looked at going uh, going forward. Mossy, anything about the new uh, CEO as it pertains to going forward with the United States Soccer Federation? I know we talk a lot on the pod about the United States Soccer Federation, and it is important because it is this governing body, and it does have its hands in a lot of things when it comes to soccer. Well, I don't know the man, so I don't have much of an opinion on whether he's a, a good hire or not, but... Uh... The fact that he does have some marketing on his resume obviously set off all the critics of U.S. Soccer Federation. Now, excuse my ignorance here, but how important is the CEO in a tangible sense in terms of the impact uh, on the soccer product on the field? Uh, Would the CEO have any real involvement there or they're just handling sort of the business side of things? They would be handling the business side. I think the, the choices have been made and the good choices and the evolution have been made from a competitive side where you have the likes of Brian McBride, Ernie Stewart, and Kate Margraff coming in. Those are the people that are in charge of how this soccer team and how these soccer teams are going to play on the field. The monetization of that, and as I say each and every week, the membership, responding to the membership. The United States Soccer Federation is so much more than just the women's national team and the men's national team. Uh, and, And then the other part of it is get the lawsuits sorted out. I mean, that that is sitting in the palm of the hand of both Will Wilson and Cindy Parlo Cohn. And, you know, it came out this week that Cindy Parlo Cohn was on the litigation committee and, you know, people coming out and extolling the virtues of her and giving her the benefit of the doubt. And that's all fine and well. But as I said, there's there's blame that, that goes around for for everybody. And, you know, I, I don't think to answer your question, Mossy, this will not have a dramatic effect on what's happening on the field except for perception matters. And so from that perspective, Will Wilson has only up to go. Let's hope. I mean, fingers crossed. Uh, and, and I think that he, in very short order, if he sorts out some of these lawsuits that they have, and as I said before, for both Cindy and for, for Will, if they are in charge and it's on their watch that these lawsuits are sorted out, you know, they can, they can write their own check. Uh, they can be viewed as the great negotiator and the, the person that came in and brought everybody together and said, look, enough of this. And I think everybody wants that. They're going to have to pay, and they're going to have to pay more than they, they probably should, but such is the case when uh, you uh, make those decisions that they made that uh, came back and bit, uh, and bit them. But I don't think, you know, I don't think he's going to be, and, and he's, he's very honest in terms of his soccer experience and what he knows and what he, uh, what he doesn't. But there's a lot of other things that go on in the United States Soccer Federation other than telling them how to play with 11 players on the field. 
Well, should we transition to a scheduling change that could impact U.S. men and women? Yeah. So we know that nobody's actually kicking the ball. And with the postponements or the cancellations, the suspensions of leagues and tournaments and games, there are some you know realities that we have to face. And so we, we come to find out that finally, I don't think it's a surprise to anyone, that the Olympics have been postponed until uh, next summer. Now, why is this interesting and worth uh, worth talking about well let's start with the uh, with the men's team which i think just from a fundamental standpoint why this brings up questions for those that don't know in the olympics in an effort to try to separate them and not just have another world cup when it comes to soccer in the olympics fifa and the ioc came to the agreement that olympics for men in this in uh, uh, in soccer are under 23 at the time of the olympics and then Olympics uh, back, they decided to have three overage players. So there's an age limit uh, when it comes to the Olympics. So you've just added a year. So how does this change? And I think uh, if our calculations are correct, there is a number of players that if the Olympics, in the way the rules are written right now, happen next summer, that they would be ineligible from an age perspective. I suppose they could be one of the three overage players, but for the most part, they would be ineligible in that they are right in that under 23 window or close to it when it was going to happen this summer. So it, it raises the question, if this is going to happen, and this is unprecedented, but if this is going to happen, do you add another year and then make it under 24 at the time of the Olympics? I say you do. I think that that is absolutely appropriate especially when it comes to players that have been training and trying to get get ready for this you give them the opportunity this is this is force majeure type of stuff where nobody could have foreseen this this is this is certainly bad luck but don't take bad luck and make it even worse for the players and i i got a feel that the ioc is going to say it's going to be under 24 mossy do you think it should be uh, under 24 and do you think that the ioc will make it under 24 next summer I think it should be, and I think they will. A few other thoughts on this. First off, it has not been determined that it will definitely be in the summer. There are some people pushing for the Olympics to occur in the spring to avoid Tokyo's hottest months, while others are arguing that it should be kept in the summer. A decision on that should come down in the next couple of weeks. I do think the smart money is it happening in the summer. And if so, that does have some interesting U.S. men implications. Now, a reminder, the U.S. women have already qualified U.S. men have not yet. Uh, CONCACAF's Olympic qualifying tournament was supposed to be going on right now, actually. Uh, we're taping this on a Sunday. The two semifinals, which would have determined the two berths, uh, would have been tomorrow. Uh, but obviously, the tournament was postponed, and they've, they've yet to determine a, a replacement date. And a reminder, on the men's side, 14 of the 16 spots have already been claimed. The only two left are the two CONCACAF ones. Let's say, hypothetically, the U.S. men do qualify. Originally, the Olympics were going to be the only tournament the U.S. would take part in this summer. And so I think everybody was on the page of sending the strongest team possible, fighting to get players released, and making the most of it. If it happens now in the summer of 21, it would be in the same summer as a Gold Cup, and it's unlikely that any European club would allow a player to take part in two different international tournaments in the same summer. So the U.S. would now have a decision to make regarding the Pulisics, McKinney, Adams, Reyna, Serginio Dest. And listen, I know a lot of people are going to listen to this and say, of course, we should go for the Olympics. It's something different. 
Uh, it's something more global. Who cares about the Gold Cup? But remember, you are robbing Peter to play Paul there because presumably Greg Berhalter is going to coach the Gold Cup. Jason Christ would coach the Olympics. And boy, you'd be depriving Greg Berhalter of a month with his best players in the midst of trying to qualify for and preparing for the next world cup. So it would be tricky to see how the U S handles. It. I know I'm getting ahead of myself. Who knows what the calendar is going to look like in the next couple of years. And maybe our whole conception of off seasons is going to be different, but let's say we're, we're operating in terms of a traditional calendar in 21. And so you have that situation where you sort of have to choose one tournament or the other, because European clubs will only allow a player to play in one of them. How would you sort of see U.S. soccer handling that situation? This is such a good question and an interesting question, Mossy, because had the United States men's national team not had the epic fail in 2017 of not qualifying to go to the 2018 World Cup, my answer may have been different. But in all the things that we talk about now in American soccer, I've said it before, this cascading effect where it has shrouded everything done and colored and darkened everything in a completely negative way. Things that we didn't even anticipate, things that even have nothing to do with kicking the ball. And therefore, the only remedy is to get back to the World Cup. And that is more important than anything that we are talking about right now. By the way, it's more important than Will Wilson or, or any of the other stuff that we're talking about because it fixes so many things. It solves so many things. It puts right a incredible wrong that, as I said, we still feel to this day. So I, in normal circumstances, I would say the Olympics, because that experience is can be fundamental and, and changing, because I've been through it. I, I know what it, how important it, it is. I've talked about matriculating from an Olympic team and a group and a core that is that is fostered and then goes into the full national team. But in this case, obviously, the Gold Cup is against competition that we are then going to face in qualification for a World Cup. And therefore, the more opportunity you get to face and hopefully beat the competition from CONCACAF, which is where you're qualifying out of, the better off it is. And in no way am I implying that qualifying for a World Cup is some sense of accomplishment. At least it hasn't been since I started playing and since 1986 when we didn't qualify. But because of that fail, I would say that the Gold Cup has to take priority as much as, as much as it hurts me. But keep in mind, there is also a rampway up to 2026. And that group that we're talking about, while they may not fully for 2022, they may in 2026. And you, like you said, there's, there is this balance and they would be missing something, not doing that Olympics. But I don't think that you can afford to do anything that's going to hurt your chances of qualifying for the next world cup. And one other note unrelated to the U S but I do want to get this in here. England this week decided to void this season in all the leagues from the seventh tier down and that news sent a shiver down the spine of Liverpool fans like Keith Costigan and Zach Kenworthy because there's this raging debate about what should happen if the Premier League season can't be completed in a timely manner. And there is this growing sentiment among all these other clubs that the season should just be voided. And obviously the elephant in the room is 
is what what would happen with Liverpool? I mean, would they lose out on the title here that they were about to clinch when they're 20-something points clear of the competition? So that's the other, uh, you know, I, I know unrelated to the U.S., I'm sort of pivoting to something else completely different, but that was the other sort of news related to the, in addition to the Olympics being postponed, related to this crisis that really caught my attention this week that I thought was interesting. Look, Mossy, I mean, you've hit on something that I know everybody in the soccer world is is talking about and, and trying to figure out. And there are no answers because, as we've said millions of times, this is uncharted territory for all of us. I think that if you cancel leagues, and I look, I, while I remain hopeful that we are going to see professional soccer being played, whether it's domestically here in the United States or finishing up of, uh, of leagues around the world, I don't see it happening for a while uh, and a long while. And just because of uh, the serious nature of, of the world that we are living in right now and this crisis that we, are, that we are going through, I still will always look at Liverpool, even if they said, that's it, the season's done, null and void, none of the records count. I will still look at Liverpool of having won it. So that, it doesn't change for me, but it would be so Liverpool <laughs> for this for this to happen in this moment. And that they're so far ahead, I think, you know, what would really be difficult for people to understand is if they were, if, or, or maybe it'd be easier for them to understand or, or for all of us to wrap our brains around it if they, if they were closer right now. But I mean, they were gonna win it any, anyway, eventually, because of the uh, distance, uh, the, the distance that they have. But I'm telling you, I mean, we've seen the cancellations now of leagues, both domestic and, and international right now. I don't think that we're going to see professional soccer being played in the way that we know it for a long time to come. And while it pains me to say that, I mean, unless something changes dramatically in, from a positive way, in a good way, um, this, is, this is not going away anytime soon, this, this new normal that we are uh, muddling through right now. When do you think uh, anything changes, if it does? Well, <laughs> I don't know. You asked me that question last week, and and I and I speculated, but I'm speculating about something I have no clue about, so I probably shouldn't say anything. But just my sense and the way the leagues are talking is that they're still holding out hope of being able to sometime here in the next two or three months uh, resume play again, even if it's in empty stadiums. I don't know if that's realistic, but they're at least sort of planning for that contingency just in terms of uh, the different chatter I'm hearing. So, you know, fingers crossed that that's possible. But as you mentioned, who the heck knows? Well, and, and look, they have to do their due diligence and they have to be prepared if and when this comes back online and they have given the go ahead to do that from the business perspective and the sporting perspective that they have. And that's that's all fine and well. Uh, let's end it with this because we mentioned the Olympics and let's circle back uh, to the Olympics. When it comes to the women, and you mentioned that they have already qualified for the Olympics, so it's, that's, not even a, that's not even a question. But what it really gets interesting is that someone like Alex Morgan, who we know is integral and, and important and a huge part of that machine that is the United States women's national team, she has been pregnant and was it was going to be touch and go. She was going to have a few months before the Olympics to get into uh, back into fighting shape, if you will, to be able to participate. And she was on schedule to do that. This gives her a whole nother year. So if you're Alex Morgan... This actually gives you a refreshed type of approach. And if you're Vladko, the coach uh, for the United States women's national team, this gives you another piece to put into that uh, puzzle that you're trying uh, that you're trying to solve right now. So I guess if there is a silver lining when it comes to this for someone like Alex Morgan, 
uh, and for the United States women's national team, that could possibly pay dividends if it happens, as we said, in 2021, whether it's a summer or spring or anything like that, because now you're going to get a fully functioning Alex Morgan, who will have had plenty of time to get back to where she needs to be when it comes to uh, after uh, after a pregnancy. So we'll see how that uh, how that all plays about. Anything else, Mossy, when it comes to the United States Soccer Federation that you want to touch on? Nope. Okay. Uh, coming up, we are going to talk Ask Alexi questions. They are still coming in fast and furious. Everybody's got some questions out there. So we are going to be answering some of the most interesting ones that we have out there. Ask Alexi. Okay, it's that time again. Even though uh, the uh, the program and the pod has uh, been altered a little bit to fit our new normal here, we still have Ask Alexi questions coming in from you. And thank you so much for doing that. You use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there on the uh, social media platforms, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or uh, any of the things out there, Instagram. And you let us know if you do have questions, comments, or concerns. And we call the very finest ones out there, the ones that are going to elicit the most debate and opinion. And that's what we've done this week. Mossy, what do the people want to know out there this week when it comes to Ask Alexi? You can also have Ask Mossy out there too, by the way. First up, at AlexMe0305, Qualtemo Blanco or Carlos Vela? Pick. Wow. All right. Don't tell me what to do, uh, number one. But I will satisfy your request here. So, Qualtemo Blanco, a legendary Mexican uh, international player who also had a legendary impact when it comes to the Chicago Fire in Major League Soccer. We know what Carlos Vela is, also a legend when it comes to Mexican soccer, and certainly well on his way to becoming one of the great players ever to play in Major League Soccer with LAFC. Okay, so this is why I'm going to pick Carlos Vela, because when I pay my money, here's when I pay my money, I recognize that magical things can happen. But I also recognize that I may go to a game and magical things may not happen, okay? I try to hedge my bets when I'm giving my hard-earned money and picking and choosing things where I think there's a better chance of something magical happen. When it comes to Carlos Vela, I think that he has a better chance of providing me those magic moments on a consistent basis than Cuauhtémoc Blanco, okay? I will say, though, that those magic moments, Blanco did them better. His moments were fewer and far between, but they were more magical. I would rather be given a less magical moment, but on a more consistent basis. And that's why I pick Carlos Vela. Now, if you're a coach, we all know that coaches, what they, they don't want you doing this. Okay, They want you doing this. Right? So they can count on you to have a consistent level of production. And that's what Carlos Vela does. Now, his level of production and magic, by the way, is much higher than anybody else out there. But that's why I would go with Carlos Vela, because I think he is worth the money. And he is of more value when it comes to paying your good, hard-earned money than Cuauhtémoc Blanco. What do you think, Masi? Well, I have two Vela points to consider here. If you were Mexican... How would you feel about Carlos Vela? Because he never played for a Mexican club. I think he's undoubtedly the most talented Mexican player of his generation, but he never played for a Mexican club. He's now playing for an MLS team, knocking out Mexican clubs from the CONCACAF Champions League. And he's also had a very odd relationship with the national team. He's turned down calls. 
He's taken long hiatuses from the team, skipped major tournaments, missed the 2014 World Cup. He has over 70 caps, and he's played in two World Cups, so it's not like he's had no international career to speak of, but it could have been a lot better if he had been more invested over the years. So if you're Mexican, try to put yourself in a Mexican person's shoes. Like, How would you feel about Carlos Vela? I think he'd feel in a certain way the same way. Well, not the same, but but kind of similarities to the way that Argentinians feel about Messi or even the way that that we look, for example, at someone like Steve Chirundolo, okay, who with with so first off, there's a level of respect, undeniable respect. I think that Mexican soccer fans, without a doubt, respect what Carlos Vela has been able to accomplish, that at no point was it being done domestically. Should it count against a player? No, but we're all human beings. And so it was always, it's always been over there, whether you're Argentine looking at Messi, whether you're uh, Mexican and looking at Carlos Vela, or whether you're, let's be honest, whether you're American looking at Steve Chirundo. And I know, I know a lot of people love Steve, Steve Chirundo. I love him, one of the great American players, but he's never going to be looked at the same as somebody who had that moment of day in and day out relevancy domestically. And that's okay. That's that's just the way that it is. Is it fair? Well, welcome to life. Life isn't fair and soccer isn't fair. And so that's that's I think how it is it is looked upon. And but but let's be honest, whether it's Messi, Steve Chirondolo, or Carlos Vela, they don't care. Nor 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 should they. There's nothing they can do to change that. They made their choices, they took the path. For all of them, it's been wildly successful in the way that some people look at it. There's just going to be some people that don't because you weren't front and center. You weren't day in and day out, either playing domestically, playing for a local team that you could see. You weren't involved in media or anything like that. So I think that's how he is he is looked at. But, you know, Coltemo Blanco, I think, is once again looked at more magical in the things that he that he has done. But, you know, having having seen him play, those moments of magic were Bruce Arena is famous for saying that Clint Dempsey tried shit. The exact same thing applies to Blanco. He did stuff and tried stuff that nobody else did or even thought about doing. And at times it was unconventional. At times it looked comedic, but it resonated. People wanted to see it. I wanted to see it. What's he going to do? What The ball's at his feet. Now you raise up in your seat a little bit. You, you're, you hold your breath. And that's what stars do. They, they, they make you do that because the potential for something magical to happen exists every single time that they get the ball. Moss, what second else? second point. In January, after Luis Suarez got injured, uh, there were rumors that Barcelona had tried to sign Carlos Vela. They were shopping for a striker. Vela gave an interview recently with GQ Mexico in which he said the rumors were true. Barcelona were, in fact, interested in him in a loan deal until the rest of the season. And LAFC said no. Last week, we talked about the Beckham effect and David Beckham's time in MLS. And one of the big sources of controversy early on were those loan spells with AC Milan, which caused them to miss part of MLS seasons. Do you look at it as a sign of progress that a club like LAFC felt comfortable telling Carlos Vela to turn down a loan to uh, Barcelona? And do you, th you think MLS is at a place now where, where that notion of, of a player spending part of the offseason on loan with a European club and, in fact, missing part of the MLS season as a result? Those days are over, and MLS has enough clout now to tell any player that, no, you can't do that? Well, look, LAFC is paying Carlos Vela a lot of money. And so I, I completely think it's within their, their right to do something like that. 
And I do think that the league has moved on to a situation where that is completely legitimate. Okay. You're selling tickets. Once again, going back to selling tickets, you're trying to grab eyeballs uh, based on the product that you put on the field. And Carlos Vela is a huge part of that product. And you don't want to do anything that's going to undermine that or hurt his ability to consistently give you that quality product. Completely get that. Now, the message that it sends is one that is going to resonate because it's specifically it's Barcelona. And that's why I look at it and say, yeah, but it is Barcelona. And what's the message that it sends if and when Carlos Vela does go to Barcelona and he plays and he does well? And that's, I think, where the weighing of the situation probably was done, both from a club level at LAFC and from a league level in MLS. And how important was it to the legitimacy and the relevancy of Major League Soccer to agree to this and have your player go to one of the great clubs in the world that automatically gives you relevancy uh, and credibility and value when you are playing for it, and to have an MLS player do that in a loan type of situation. You know, I don't know, the calculation was done, and the importance of what he was doing for LAFC came out on top. And I, I think that says a lot about how far Major League Soccer has come and how far the how far LAFC has come. That that's what they that that's what they decided. I wonder how much or little it played on Carlos Vela's mind. If he how much he cared or not, because it's a great opportunity that he ultimately wasn't given, and he's not the kind to sulk, uh, at least publicly, about something like that. But it, it it would have been interesting to be a fly on the wall during those conversations, both those conversations with Carlos Vela and LAFC, and the conversations between MLS. LAFC and the player, and I guess the player's agent. All right, next up, at Ray Roma 9 As I'm here listening to the pod, I thought of a question to ask. Based on talent alone, is the 2002 World Cup squad more talented than what we have now? Ooh, interesting. Interesting question. Okay, so I went back and looked at lineups and and and, and personnel. And look, I know it's, it's ever-changing. Even within an actual World Cup, the lineups change. But I, I got basically a best 11, if you will, when it comes to both of these teams. And it's hard now because we know it's still in flux under Greg Berhalter. But so for people that don't remember back in 2022, the United States national team, when it went the furthest that it has ever gone, finishing but a handball away from possibly going to a semifinal of a World Cup, uh, they ended up losing the quarterfinals to uh, Germany. Uh, along the way, they beat the likes of Portugal, uh, the, the famous Dos Azero uh, with Mexico. So just the pinnacle and the highlight from a men's national team perspective of World Cup competition under uh, Bruce Serena. And, it, and you know, he was stocked with great, great players. And this is the problem when you do something like this. The current mix of players under Greg Berhalter hasn't done anything. So automatically, it disqualifies them, okay, or it lessens the way that I would look at them. So I'm, I'm trying not to do that, but inevitably that's going to creep into my mind. This is a, a team in, in 2002 that we're talking about that went to the quarterfinals of the World Cup, for God's sake. So you're looking goalkeeper, Zach Steffen versus Brad Friedel. I'll take Brad Friedel all day, okay? Maybe Zach Steffen in 10 years, we'll look at him differently, but it's not even a question, okay? When it comes to center backs, Burhalter and Brooks, okay? All right, I think, I think you can make a case for Brooks there. Eddie Pope and someone like Aaron Long, Eddie Pope all day, okay? When we talk about a midfield three, and I know we haven't seen a lot of this three, but I'm going to say a midfield three of McKenney, 
Adams and Michael Bradley right now versus a, a midfield of Reyna, John O'Brien, and Paolo Mastriani, okay? I'm still going to take the Reyna, O'Brien, Mastriani, okay? And part of it is that McKenney and Adams, they're still young and they haven't been through something like this. And again, I, I told you it was hard not to do something like that, but, but you have to. Okay, so then you look at some outside backs. We have players like Dest versus maybe a, a, a Senna or a, a Frankie Haydick and these types of things. I think that Dest, given his pedigree and he's still very young and I know I'm extrapolating it out, I think that at a certain point he can be better than those. Uh, on the left side, you have Tim Reams or Lovitz. We really don't have a left back per se right now. And I know Dest has played over there at times. You got guys like Jeff Agus or, or, or Eddie Lewis, these left-sided players. I still think right now we don't have left-sided players when it comes to defensive type of players right now. So without a doubt, 2002 wins out. Uh, and then you're talking attacking players. And so for lack of a better three, I'm going to go with Josie, Jordan Morris, and Christian Pulisic, all right, versus, let's say, Brian McBride, Landon Donovan, as I said, you know, a possible. And it was a hard, it was hard to understand exactly where these guys are setting up, but you got uh, Tony Senna who was bombing up and down that right, right side. Kobe Jones would come in and stuff like that. I still think that Donovan and McBride are better than Morris and Josie Altador. And I, I think Christian Pulisic probably, even at this time, when he's healthy, and that's a big if, but when he is healthy, I still think that he is better than anything from uh, 02, let's say, on that, on that right side. So I put that all into my calculator, and it comes back with 2002. And I know it's it's biased and <laughs> because of the fact of, of what they did. And hopefully this group, whatever 11 it ends up being, goes goes on and does uh, does great things. But yes, it's 2002. Were they the most talented? Depends what you define talent as. I think that the 2002, I would much rather be in a bar fight, bar fight with 2002 than in 2020, in the 2020 version. Uh, I believe that 2002 would run through a wall and a bigger wall. Uh, much easily, much more easily than the 2020 version, and all of this is because I haven't seen them do what I'm what I'm saying that 2002 group would do. So there's your answer, Mossy. Any uh, comments, questions, concerns? Yeah, two larger points here. There's an old axiom in sports that it's much easier to go from nothing to competitive than it is to go from competitive to elite. And I think the U.S. national team is a classic example of that. If you look at the period from 1990 to 2002, it's one of immense progress. Now, history doesn't move in a straight line. It zigzags. So there were some setbacks along the way, most famously 1998. But I think you'd be hard-pressed to look at the U.S. national team in 1990 and then again in 2002 and not see that there's a, a distinct difference there. And I think the mistake people made is they expected to continue that progress at the same pace, which led people to think the U.S. was going to be winning World Cups in the relatively near future. Some people thought as, as soon as 2006. I mean, there was a narrative coming out of 2002 that that was the breakthrough moment. And, and four years from now, the U.S. was going to go to Germany and be one, a contender to win the World Cup. And as we sit here four and a half cycles later, the U.S. has not won a knockout stage match at a World Cup since. And they haven't even been back to the quarterfinals. They didn't qualify for the last World Cup. So I think a lot of people have concluded that things have stagnated, that uh, the U.S. has plateaued. The U.S. is standing as a soccer nation in 2020 isn't any higher than it was in 2002. How do you view that? And do, do you think it, it is an indictment of the lack of progress of the U.S. program that we're sitting here saying the 2002 team is better still than what we have in 2020? I mean, how, how do you interpret all that? I look at it as a natural type of evolution and progress and expect it because 
even back in 2002, that was a team that was populated with players who had played or were playing in Major League Soccer. And so relative to something like 1994 or 1990, none of the players, we didn't have a league of our own. Having said that, I think what we, in our zeal to produce better players and some real resources and energy and just better on and off the field circumstances, we have done that. We have lost some of what enabled us to compete back then. And maybe that's, maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. I mean, when we talk about the, the physical nature, uh, the, the mentality, the underdogish type of uh, spirit spunk, all those things, I know it's hard to define. And I, I don't like to do that, but that ruggedness, that American rugged, ruggedness, I think some of that has been lost because we look at it as Neanderthal, we look at it as ancient, and we look at it as limiting in terms of our ability to grow. And if we don't get rid of that, then we will never be able to be elite, like you said. And so, so yes, I, I, I think that we are missing the, the very thing that enabled us to compete once, we threw, we threw away in an effort to become better rather than say, look, while we recognize that we can't rely on this solely, let's not throw that out. Let's keep that, augment it, and add to it the stuff that we are missing. And when we have that mix, look out, look out. But we don't have that mix and the right balance yet of that. A second point, I know this podcast is going to run long. Alex Dowd is probably not happy, but a lot of people- All we have is time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a lot of people, when assessing the talent that the U.S. is producing, they, they give a lot of credence to European club pedigree. And so that's led a lot of people to look at this young nucleus of players coming up and, and, and to conclude that it, it must be better than anything the U.S. has ever produced before. Because, look, you have a guy on Chelsea, a guy on Dortmund, a guy on Ajax, a guy on Schalke, a guy on Leipzig. Do you subscribe to that line of thinking or do you think that's a little bit flawed? Because as we've talked about on this podcast, your generation didn't have the same acceptance in Europe as the players right now. So, you know, the players right now are sort of benefiting from doors that you knock down. If a Tab Ramos had come along today, he'd probably be a 60 million euro Chelsea player. So you think that's a little bit of a flawed way of looking at things to assume that the players the U.S. is producing now are better than what they did in the past just because they're, they're signed by bigger European clubs? You know, I always tell you that form is fallacy. Uh, and you know, I'll also tell you not to get sucked in and uh, with the romance of where somebody plays. And, you know, when speaking of 2020 or 2002, when Landon Donovan or DeMarcus Beasley are running around and starring on the global stage and that they're playing for MLS. okay, so it doesn't matter where you're playing, to be quite honest with you. Do I prefer and like that you're playing at a high level? Yes. But it doesn't mean that if you're not playing at a perceived high level that you can't be successful when it comes uh, when it comes to the national team. We see it we see it time and time again. So, yes, I think that we are associating progress and therefore improvement with the resumes and the CVs that you know once again have 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 made the perception of all of the players and the individual players that we look at as having improved and better, but that's not necessarily the case. And we see that, we see that time and time again. All right. What else? Uh, Last question at 
Sean Stefan, what's the craziest new rule proposal for soccer that you can think of that you genuinely think would improve the sport? There's an evergreen, huh? Um, so we talk about these all the time. I think over the course of the years, I have at different times thrown out things like uh, making the goals bigger and people laugh. And just from a practical standpoint, while the reason why it makes it crazy is that it would be next to impossible just from a pure economic and, and financial standpoint, given all the goals that exist in the world, if now they are bigger, that could be that could be problematic. But now every goal, every ball that hits the post, every ball that just goes right over the post or past the crossbar is actually a goal. Hey, you know, that's that that's something interesting, especially given how good and agile and how much better goalkeeping is in the modern game. So that was one. I've often talked about how the handling law, I think, should be changed. Just if it hits your hand or your arm, it's a foul. Don't worry about any of the other stuff. If, if defenders have to play with their arms behind their back, then so be it. So I think that would be a good one. I don't know how crazy that is. And then the possibility of a penalty box type of scenario, send in, people have called it different things, where rather than lose a player for good, you lose a player for a period of time. And, you know, that's something that, that I think could possibly come into play down the line. So those are, those are three different things. Mossy, anything come to mind for, uh, from your perspective? I don't know how crazy it is, but my father has always been a proponent that you should be able to sub out of a game and then come back in. That way, if a player is shaken up, uh, he can come out and get himself sorted, but then could perhaps 10, 15 minutes later uh, come back into the game. And also, there'd be an element of strategy of, you know, you're protecting a lead, so you take out a striker, bring in a defender, but then if you concede and all of a sudden you're chasing again, you can bring the striker back in, take the defender out. He kind of likes that element of strategy would add to the game. So he's always been a proponent of that. All right. Well, uh, hit us up out there with uh, some ideas that you have out there. Like we said, we, we have plenty of time nowadays to think of uh, interesting and maybe even just crazy things. But who knows? Maybe they're not crazy. You never know uh, when a, an idea out there is looked at as crazy initially and then becomes the norm uh, further on down the line. All right. Uh, that's enough of uh, Ask Alexi. Mossy, what do we have next? Lay it, lay it down for the people out there, because I know we're going to veer off into something different here. Yeah, I mean, th this has been uh, this question has been circulating on Twitter, and we thought we'd address it here on the podcast. A lot of people have been asked to name four players who have meant a lot to them in their lives. It can be mentor or or somebody you really enjoyed as a fan, a teammate, uh, you know, a, a coach, even uh, let's say. I know you came up with a list. Uh, I'll let you go first. Yeah. So you know, as people are at home, and and obviously online a lot of these questions some of them evergreen some of them relative to what's what's going on right now come up and lists are huge everybody knows everybody that works in our industry everybody knows that lists are huge and so people were asking for for four people in the world of soccer that have had an impact on you and so here here are my four people and I'll do them chronologically in for, in terms of when they first came into my life first and foremost would be Trevor Francis, a former England international, many of you may have heard of him. And the only reason that I ever cared or heard about him is because when I was a young boy growing up in the suburbs of Detroit, there was a team that played in the Detroit, uh, in the Pontiac Silverdome called the Detroit Express. And their big signing 
was Trevor Francis. And I'll never forget when the signing happened and going out to see a Detroit Express game at the Pontiac Silverdome, by the way, the same Silverdome that many years later I would play a World Cup game in, and seeing Trevor Francis play. And what amazed me about him wasn't the way he kicked the ball or things that he did or scored goals or anything like that. And I only saw him play live once. This is before I was watching soccer on television, but that's how much it resonated with the community. Hey, they just signed Trevor Francis. You need to go out and see this guy play. Went out and saw his play. And the thing that always stuck with me was that he wore white shoes. And I had never seen anything like that before. And so for me, again, that whole entertainer and persona and personality and costume, that's what I was left with. Not that he was this great goal scorer, but Trevor Francis. And that was the first time that any type of soccer player appeared on my radar. My walls growing up in the 70s and 80s in suburban America were not populated by soccer players. I had musicians. I had Joe Elliott, the lead singer of Def Leppard, or Stephen Piercy, the lead singer of Rat, or Eddie Van Halen, or Warren Demartini, uh, or hockey players, Steve Eiserman, uh, a former Red Wing great. That's who was on my wall, not soccer players. And I don't say that with any pride. It's just the reality of what I was growing up in at the time. I didn't see soccer. I didn't have a consistent soccer diet, either on television or going to watch games. And it wasn't, obviously, it was before the internet, so I didn't know what was going on out there. Back then, you used to watch VHS tapes that had been sent over from games over in Europe. So that's that's number one. Number two, in 1986, I was playing on a team, the likes of which mom and dad coaching, Orange Beatles, Jews at halftime, traveling all over the place, big tournaments, all that kind of stuff. I was playing on a travel team and we went to a tournament the peak invitational in colorado and that summer at the holiday inn they would put up a screen and we would watch the world cup in the summer of 1986 i was 15 turning 16 years old and i saw diego maradona and i had never seen anybody do the things that he did in the way that he did it and it it made an impression and a lasting impression. And to this day, when people ask me between Diego and Pele, I always come down on the side of Diego because it, it mattered to me more. Third, uh, I'm going to go with a coach, Bora Milutinovic. I've talked to him. Uh, he changed my life. One of the reasons why you are listening or watching right now is because of the summer of 1994. He had faith in me to play me in that World Cup. Uh, but he taught me about the game and life. Uh, he made me think about the game in a way that I had never been asked to think about before. He, he made me care about details and small things in a way that I had never been uh, asked before. And then I, I felt like I should give a, an American player. I had the uh, the privilege of playing alongside Tab Ramos, and I've talked to you about, about how important and incredible he was. He was a man at a time. He was born much too early. And you, you know, you mentioned him early Mossy, earlier Mossy, that if he was born, to, born today, I truly think he would be one of the greats, not just one of the great American players, but one of the great players in the world. That's how good he was. And he was slumming it when it came to playing with us because, uh, because he was so good. And I'll, I, I remember watching him and being so envious and in a certain, to a certain extent, jealous of the things that he could do. Um, and I had never seen anybody up close doing those types of things. So there's there's four people that had an impact. There's a lot of other people out there that, that did, 
but those there's four people in uh, in my life that had an impact. Mossy. Well, if I'm being honest, the two professional soccer players that have impacted my life the most have been Eric Winold and Alexi Lalas, given all the energy I've expended trying to make sense of their inane ramblings. But I will say that there, there's one guy that towers above the rest uh, for me, and it's the uh, Brazilian Ronaldo. Uh, he's my, my hero, my favorite player of the 10 happiest moments of my life. He's responsible for like seven of them. So I almost don't even want to put anyone else in the same class as him. Uh, he's the most transcendent talent I've ever seen. I'm one of these people that thinks that if not for injuries, he'd be in the greatest player of all time conversation right now. But yeah, I mean, I tend to live vicariously through whoever the star Brazilian of the moment is. So I had a Romario phase. Uh, obviously, I had a Ronaldinho phase in the mid-2000s. Right now, it's Neymar. So in terms of non-Brazilians, I've always had kind of a thing for Italian playmakers. I love Roberto Baggio. I love Del Piero. Del Piero might be my favorite non-Brazilian player of all time. And I love Francesco Totti. So I don't know why, but I've always been drawn to Italian players as well. Nice, nice. Well, send us your list if you have people out there and, and, and expand it out. Like I said, it doesn't have to be a player. It could be people that influence you. We don't have to know them. They don't have to be famous or legendary out there, but we all have these different people. And at a time when I think we're, we're being forced to, you know, have moments of introspection and, and thoughts of the past and memories and all that kind of stuff, you know, it's a, it's a good time to, uh, to think about it for you to recognize it. And, and to a certain extent, give credit out there because none of us have ever had any level of success without a whole lot of people along the way that have, uh, that have helped us and influenced us. Some people that have no idea that they influenced, uh, influenced us but in doing the things that they were doing they had an impact all right mossy i think that's about enough for today uh we've covered a lot of different things and we have a lot of time and as i've said uh, all we have is time right now so we do still as always appreciate people listening uh at the end of each pod i, I do like to give you one for the road and if you are listening to this on a monday you are actually listening to it on national doctors day uh, we all certainly in this moment are thinking about uh, the doctors, especially everyone uh, in the medical community that is on the front line of, uh, of what's happening right now. And that there should, that there's a day to celebrate doctors every day should be a day to celebrate doctors and all people in the medical community for what they do. And so I think back in my career and, and times when doctors have come into play, I've told you before that I was very fortunate not to have a lot of injuries in my career, but back in what would have been 1990, uh, I would have been 19 or 20 years old. I was at Rutgers University and um, I uh, got sick and I ended up having a appendicitis, which in and of itself is not that big a deal anymore. Uh, happens uh, happens to uh, younger people uh, for the most part. Uh, and it happens all the time. It's a relatively routine type of procedure until it isn't. And the fear and the worry all the time when it comes to appendicitis is that uh, your appendix will burst. Appendix is kind of like a cigar in that it burns down at times. And then they have to go in and take the, the, the nub out. And that's what happened with, uh, with, well, it gets inflamed. That's what happened with mine. And my appendix burst. And the problem is it sends out poisons into your body and they have to go and figure it out. And it can be very dangerous at a time. So it ended up happening that I was... Uh, in the middle of my season playing uh, with soccer uh, at Rutgers University, my appendix burst. It was a bad scene. I ended up spending a, well, about a month out uh, and in the hospital for weeks on end. Uh, I lost 40 pounds. And I had wonderful 
doctors. And at a time when you need doctors, you want to have wonderful people. And I think back to uh, the doctors that I have out there and, I, and that, have, that I've come in contact over the years with. And the doctor back then, I still to this day remember his name, Dr. John Sutiak. This was a teaching hospital. So he and all of these young, wide-eyed type of uh, doctors and potential doctors would come in and examine me and, and figure it all out. And I was a mess. It was, not a, it was not a pretty scene. But they nursed me back to health, and I forever am, are indebted to their dedication and their bedside manner and ultimately their skill and their, uh, their ability. And I say that to celebrate uh, this National Doctors' Day and, and all people in the medical profession that are helping us, including people that have been involved since I was a kid. One of my best friends is a uh, pediatric emergency physician out east, Dr. Brian Sard. And I say that because I know he listens to the pod. He was actually, we were joking the other day because I told my story about freezing a two uh, liter wine cooler way back in the day. And he, uh, he said, I remember that night. Uh, and he was really with us whenever I was getting up to uh, getting up to things. And now he's, uh, he's uh, a pediatric emergency physician. But, you know, all of the physicians, all of the medical uh, personnel right now are, are there and are dealing with it. Uh, different uh, ones to different extent. We say thank you, bless you for what you do each and every day, and in particular what you are doing right now for our country uh, in the incredibly challenging and difficult circumstances that uh, that you are put under. And you know, unfortunately, it looks like it's only going to get worse before it gets better. But putting themselves on the line each and every day to help us out there. Uh, we thank you, all of the doctors, all of the nurses, everybody in the medical facility. It shouldn't just be a day. It's one of those professions where every day and you don't know how important it is until you actually need it. And there's a lot of people right now uh, that need it. Uh, they do their job each and every day and they help us out. And in many cases, uh, they save us. And you will never forget when you are saved and you are helped by somebody out there in the medical profession, uh, nor should you because when all is said and done, money and sports and all the other things, uh, everything pales relative to uh, your health and they are tasked with keeping you healthy. And so listen to what they say and celebrate them, not just on this Monday, but each and every day. Mossy, anything uh, to say before we go? Well, I hate to follow that up with something so trivial, but the Sunderland behind the scenes documentary drops on Netflix this upcoming Wednesday, April 1st. They already did uh, one on Sunderland, which I, was one of the best sports documentaries I've ever seen. And now they're going to do a follow-up one on the, on the next season. Uh, so I suspect it'll be very compelling as well. So uh, I would, if you haven't seen the original one, I would binge watch that in the next couple of days. So you're good to go for, for season two. Nothing trivial at all about that. We need all the recommendations that we can possibly get in terms of keeping us uh, entertained and keeping us uh, sane, as we said. And with that, uh, we will let you go. We appreciate and uh, we uh, thank you so much for listening each and every week. We know that this is a little bit different type of structure here, but uh, you know, hopefully the audio is uh, of quality. I know the video comes in and out, but you'll forgive us as I know everybody is. Uh, we're making the the best and doing uh, the best that we possibly can giving, given the resources uh, that we have. I hope that you, as I said, are staying safe. I hope that you are staying healthy. Please be good to each other. Please be good to yourself. Uh, for those of us that are in families uh, right now, be good to your families. And we will talk again uh, next week. Hit us up out there on all the platforms. Use that Ask Alexi hashtag. Please write and subscribe and review 
and rate and do all those uh, different things that we do out there. And we will talk again, uh, again next week. And as always, size the day. <laughs> <laughs>